News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's a pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 9th, and show number 32 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing how to assess prospects, being a fantasy baseball writer, vetoing trades, and much more. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Baltimore right-hander Miguel Gonzalez visiting Houston to take on right-hander Colin McHugh and Miami right-hand ground baller Henderson Alvarez in San Diego against left-hander Robbie Erlin. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler says, admit it, it's over. It's another big Friday show and it's just getting started. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Let's talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. I like saying welcome to the show because that's what the players call the big leagues. Uh, they, they get to go to the show. There you go. And here we are in the big leagues of uh, fantasy sports podcasting, and we'll start with the New York Mets, who made uh, a bit of a splash by calling up their top prospect, or one of their top prospects, Wilmer Flores, is in the big leagues. He is indeed. I mean, Ruben Tejada has been brutal. Uh, the guy is hitting 183, uh, no home runs, no stolen bases, six RBIs, uh, hard contact index of 44. I mean, this guy has just been awful. Good in the glove, with the glove, but awful in terms of, uh, uh, of his hitting skills. Listen to this. Ruben, Ruben Tejada, PX23. Have you heard of such a thing? Very, very, very seldom. So yeah. they've decided to go with, uh, with a guy who may have some struggles in the, uh, in the field, but, uh, certainly offers a lot more, uh, offensive potential. And that's, that's Wilmer Flores. Um, you know, you always you always have to wonder about what do you think about a prospect like this. And I, I like to go back and look at what we've got on the site uh, in the organizational reports and see what our, our minor league guys have to say about him. Um, Wilmer Flores is is uh, is not going to set – he's not going to win a gold, gold glove at shortstop. Let's put it that way. This guy has some defensive issues. But well, that's for sure, he yeah. should be much better than Tejada with a bat. I mean, the conclusion about him in terms of uh, overall impact is that – he, he can rake against left-handed pitching, uh, so at worst he'll be a good platoon player. Good enough bat to overcome defense and speed issues and could become an everyday corner infielder with 280, 285, 15, 20 home run upside. Uh, so if the guy's good enough to play a corner and we're moving him to shortstop, should be even perhaps a little bit better there. I guess the issue becomes on does your, does your league count defense, and some of them do, in which case uh, there could be some problems there. 
The other problem, of course, is that he's so bad with the glove that the Mets can't stomach the defensive shortcomings and are giving up a lot of unearned runs or runs that should have been prevented. And then they have to kind of recalibrate their expectations about is this is this player producing enough runs offensively to offset the fact that he's costing the team defensively and the and the equation is exactly the opposite for Ruben Tejada. He's completely on the other side. Is he saving enough runs with the leather to offset the fact that he's creating nothing with the bat? And and that's the calculation that every major league team has to make in situations like this. And I guess the only way to find out when you're looking at it from a fantasy perspective is wait and see. Yeah, right. I, that, that's what you're going to have to do. I mean, here's a guy, he, he's not, uh, our, our guy, our, our minor league guys say he doesn't have the foot speed to stick at second base long term. He's not going to do anything at third base for the Mets as long as David Wright is healthy and on the field. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, whether he can overcome his defensive liabilities by providing some punch that the Mets uh, uh, really, really need at this point. At BaseballHQ.com, Dan Becker, our Batters Buyer's Guide columnist, looks at uh, potential power surgers in his new column, batters who might give you a power boost for the balance of the year. And one of the names on his list is a player, well, I guess you could say we've been waiting on for a while, San Diego catcher Yasmani Grandal. Yeah, Yasmani Grandal has, if you look at, at, the, at the underlying skills, Yasmani Grandal is a 158px, a 158xpx, so a lot of power there. Uh, at this point, he's struggling a little bit with the bat, 235 BA as the result of a low contact rate. But XBA 267, uh, that, that big PX, four home runs and 81 at bats. If he can get himself into some playing time uh, and, and begin to find himself in the lineup more often, uh, here's a guy that really could provide some punch out of the catcher spot. So he's worth looking at in your league if he's available. Yeah, I think the catch is going to be the playing time issue. Uh, San Diego has options behind the dish. Uh, BaseballHQ.com is projecting Grandal for just seven home runs the rest of the way, again, because of playing time, not because of his power. And if he does manage to get some more playing time, anybody who's looking at him as a power source has to recognize that he has a contact rate in his career in the mid-70s. That's where he is right now in the league. Uh, that's where we're projecting him to stay, 75-76 contact rate, which is below kind of that 80% threshold we look for. I mean, at best, he's not going to help you with your batting average, and at worst, he could be a batting average liability. Right, very definitely. I mean, we've got a... Uh We've got a, a projected uh, BA of 255 for the rest of the year. That seems about right, but he certainly could be lower than that. Stephen Nickrand's Pitcher's Buyer's Guide looked at April skills leaders as we measure them by their base performance value, or BPV as we call it. And that's a composite metric that's made up of core skills, strikeout and walk rates, homer rates, ground ball rates. And a BPV score of 70 is usually pretty good, and 100 is where we start looking for elite pitchers. Uh, Stephen looked at National League pitchers like Tim Lincecum and Nathan Eovaldi and many others, but he was very upbeat about the Padres' Ian Kennedy. Had a terrific April, a 312 uh, earned run average, 284 expected, a whip right around one, and 56 strikeouts in 49 innings. That's a 156 BPV. That's top rated. What does Stephen say about Ian Kennedy? You know, Ian Kennedy is looking very, very good, and we, we hope he can continue pitching the way he's been pitching this year. Ian Kennedy, through his career, has been very inconsistent. Uh, 2.88 ERA in 2011, a 101 BPV, uh, looked extremely good in that year. Last year slipped to a 4.91 ERA, BPV down to 64. So at, at best, he's been inconsistent. The problem frequently has been his command. When his, uh, when his walks get up, uh, then he struggles a bit because uh, guys get on base and other guys hit home runs and, you know, those kind of bad things happen. So, so far this season, 
Control has been excellent, the best he's, of his career. One has to wonder if he can keep it up, but a, a 2.0 control ratio at this point to go with a 10.3 Dom. Ian Kennedy is looking very, very strong at this point. So uh, he could certainly, a 3.12 ERA and the best BPV we've seen out of him at 156. So here's a guy that could keep his ERA in the low threes based on his track record if he can keep the ball uh, in the strike zone and continue with the excellent command that he's currently showing. Well, the Baseball HQ projection is that Kennedy will maintain his uh, pace of about a strikeout per inning, the ERA up around the mid-threes rather than the low-threes, and a whip around 123, so we're not as optimistic about his control as uh, one might hope. A 107 base performance value still very good, though, and we have to caution, of course, wins might be in short supply for any pitcher who's fronting for San Diego. Uh, Steven also looked at Jason Hamill of the Cubs. He's off to a terrific start, 243 ERA, a 081 whip. That's really good, and $20 or so in 5x5 value, and a BPV around 100. But one of our Tuesday tout experts, I asked him about Hamill's hot start, and he said, it's not a fact, it's a fluke. And i got to say, it looks that way to me too, but to what do you say, Nick? Yeah, you know, there, there's, some, and I think Hamill's going to make it through the weekend just fine. He's got to start, I, I wrote a, a matchup thing on him yesterday. He's got to start this weekend in Atlanta, and Atlanta has not been hitting well, uh, and they don't hit well against uh, against right-handed pitchers. And so I, you know, I think he'll have a, the fact his last start in Turner Field in 2011, I believe he pitched a shutout, a one hitter. So I, you know, I think Hamill would do, may do very well this weekend and, and continue to look good. But the problem that, that Stephen pointed out, what's fueling all of this with Hamill is uh, he's first of all a 15% hit rate, 84% strand rate. Those things are clearly, uh, going to, there's going to be some regression there. Uh, and, and those were the reasons for a great April. The other thing that's, that's happening is that, his control has been outstanding, a 2.0 control, and and as Nick Rand pointed out, that's the best of his career. Never has posted a sub 2.0 control during his career. And what's going on is his f- first pitch strike rate is 51%, the lowest of his career, one of the lowest in Major League Baseball. So what that suggests is if he can't get the first pitch over the plate, that control ratio is not going to stay down around two, especially if batters realize what's going on and really lay off that first pitch. Jason Hamill's HQ projection is for a 374 ERA with a 120 whip, maybe seven or eight bucks worth of value. And Nick, that sounds to me like more what we should expect rather than 20 bucks. Yeah, I think so. I think that's certainly more more reasonable to project for him over the rest of the season than what he's done in April. Finally, bullpen buyer's guide columnist Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com, a terrific analyst, looked this week at pens where change is in the wind, and uh, he led off the entire piece with the bullpen situation in Colorado. The Rockies are doing all right. What's it about their relief corps that caught Doug's eye? Well, you know, and actually, actually, uh, Latroy Hawkins is doing all right if you look at the numbers. I mean, here's a guy, he's got nine saves already, 2.92 ERA, that's not at all bad. Uh, the, the problem with Troy Hawkins is when you look at his skills, uh, we've got a 3.6 dom rate, not good for a closer. You want somebody who can get some strikeouts here and there. Um, and and a, an XDRA of 4.84. So it certainly looks like a blow-up is coming for uh, for Latroy Hawkins. Uh, unlikely to be able to continue that throughout the year. Uh, but right now, Latroy Hawkins is in a, in a decent position. But I agree with I agree with Doug. I don't think this is something that's going to continue long-term. Uh, and I, spe- I think especially at age 41, as Latroy Hawkins, uh, as fatigue begins to become a bit of a factor over the course of the rest of the year, he's going to wear down. Um, and so you've got to look in that pen and see who else might might move forward. Uh, 
Adam Odovino has been amazing with his start so far. 1.84 ERA, 17 strikeouts, two walks. He looks very, very good and certainly is a guy to take a look at in that bullpen. Uh, BPV of 171. Uh, Rex Brothers is the name we think about. He's just been awful, so he's not going to take over. So it, right now, if, if uh, Latroy Hawkins should implode, Adam Odovino is a guy worth looking at. Now, in the short term, though, Adam Odovino started out no earned runs through April 27th. Three of his last four appearances, he's given up an earned run. So, you know, you've got to, you, you've got to take wonder if, if, uh, if Latroy Hawkins imploded next week, uh, would, Adam, would Adam Odovino beat the guy? But I certainly think he's worth someone, if, you, if you're a Troy Hawkins owner, Odovino may be worth tucking away. Yeah, the uh, Rex Brothers, uh, you said he's off to a fairly poor start, and he's a left-hander, which also complicates matters because not only are managers loath to have left-handed closers, but it means now they have to find a left-handed setup guy to move into Brothers' left-handed setup role and so forth. There's a lot of dominoes that can fall, and I really had to laugh when you said, uh, you know, Odovino's last four outings, he's given up a run because... In the selection of closers, managers are very prone to ask, what have you done for me lately? And not been that willing to look at the big picture. And I don't know whether that's based on experience or just superstition or, you know, some kind of magical short-run thinking. But definitely if Odovino doesn't right the ship and there is an opportunity, he is costing himself an opportunity or may be. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, you know, and I think it makes sense to look at what have you done for me lately when you're looking at a closer because what you want is a guy who can come in in the ninth inning today and get somebody out. You're not, uh, unlike a, a fantasy player who's thinking long-term, how many saves this guy get over the course of the year, the manager's thinking about, can he get me out of the ninth inning in this game? And if he's given up runs in his last three appearances, that's probably not the guy you want. On the other hand, the manager also has to look at how the runs got scored in that, you know, were they m- massive towering home runs? Were they four walks and, and two hits in an inning? That kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, there, there are degrees of giving up runs that are sometimes not as bad. The manager has to look at that as well. Yeah, that, very definitely. That's something that, uh, uh, that certainly a manager has to, uh, to take note of. Nick, thanks a lot for talking to us again, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. A lot of stuff going on in the American League West again, and the big news this past week was a call-up. The second-base prospect, Rugnet Odor of Texas, got covered in both the Playing Time Today column and the call-up segment at Baseball HQ by our minor league staff. Some high expectations for Rugnet Odor. I'm going to talk about him as well with Todd Zola in a few minutes, but what do you think? You know, Odor is the kind of guy who it seems as though everybody who's seen him play expects him to succeed and expects him to succeed quickly. He's a smart player. He is the kind of guy they, they describe as playing the game right. He's a gamer. He's a small guy. He's a lot of pop and a lot of speed in that, uh, in that little body, and I think Texas is trying to take advantage of a light that seemed to be flicking on at double a for him he'd gone i think 15 for 34 with three home runs recently um the real question obviously is how much time he gets how much opportunity he gets and how quickly his succeed his skills will succeed at the major league level um you know the verdict is out it's his major league debut but if but if if there is a type that can succeed quickly it will be this guy 
Raises a, an interesting question, though. What do they do when Jurickson Profar gets back? Andrews is not going anywhere, and now you now you've got Profar si- sitting there. Is he going to sit on the bench? They they mistreated him pretty badly his first uh, when he first came up into the big leagues, and I wonder if the same thing might happen to Odor in kind of a follow on situation, which is not going to be helpful for anybody who aspires to add him to their to their roster. Yeah, and that's the real question. I think a lot of it does depend on how Odor does, and if he does well. Definitely Profar has a chance to be jerked around again. He was jerked around earlier. And then again, it could be Odor who's jerked around. What happens if Odor uh, uh, plays uh, so-so off and on and Profar comes up, comes back, and they put him back in the spot, and Odor plays two, three times a week at different positions? It's a real interesting situation. Yeah, and the trouble is in modern fantasy baseball, we don't get to sit back and look at the real interesting situations anymore. We kind of have to make our move. And that is going to raise an awful lot of questions for people. Uh, there's a possibility that this guy could get, you know, three weeks or so of playing time and be sent right back to the minors when Profar comes back on the theory that you don't t- take a guy out of his job for an injury. But if he's hitting 400 and he's got a bunch of home runs and some RBIs and stuff, maybe he does play. I, I don't know how I'd handle this. I'll talk about it with Todd Zola later, I guess. Uh, staying in the American League West, Jock, the Angels made a couple of call-ups this past weekend. They called up Grant Green, I think we talked about him earlier, and C.J. Cron as well. And uh, Baseball HQ looked at both these guys in the playing time outlooks and your playing time tomorrow column. The Angels are dealing with a lot of injuries, Jock. Hamilton, Calhoun, Freeze, all hurt. So how do these call-ups play into the equation, and how do they help a fantasy team? Well, the Crown and Green call-ups were all about finding some offense and some offensive flexibility while the regulars are gone. It's funny, the Angels' offense didn't miss a beat to begin with uh, after Hamilton and Calhoun were out. But this was primarily because Albert Pujols got hot and Freeze had actually begun to warm up. But now the offense has grown cold, led by, of all hitters, Mike Trout, who really didn't do anything this last homestand. They've been pretty dependent on Trout, Pujols, and Kendrick for uh, for the last three weeks, and it hasn't been working out lately. So both Crone and, and, and Green were called up to try to mitigate some of what, uh, what they see as uh, problems that are about to develop. And they're both off to pretty decent starts. Uh, 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 Crone is, is, is going eight for his first 19, and Green is four for 13. Uh, the biggest problems are going to be on defense, but both of them have at least a chance at displacing Ian Stewart and Raul Ibanez after the uh, um, regulars return at the end of May. Uh, Ibanez, Ibanez, Ibanez's contract, um, it, it was his base contract was $2.5 million. It's a low base. I don't see LAA having a problem eating this if he can't turn that 144 batting average around and if Crone proves ready. So um, this is going to be an interesting three weeks for the Angels. Also speaking of the Angels, they had a closer situation develop. Uh, Joe Smith replaced Ernesto Frieri, then Joe Smith missed a turn and Ernesto Frieri came back. What the heck's going on there? And you also talked about maybe they have some hope down in the farm in your American League West playing time today column. What's going on with the closer situation and this farm situation? Well, this past week in the second game of a series with the Yankees, um, Smith was set to come in and make a save, but he felt some pulling in his side. He also uh, had some problems with his lunch. Apparently it came up. Um, and Frieri came in at, at a moment's notice and actually closed the deal in pretty impressive fashion. But then he flamed out spectacularly the next night when he was brought into a tie game, and he gave up a game-winning home run to light-hitting Brian Roberts. That situation is still day-to-day, but it's pretty clear that Frieri and his gopheritis 
he just can't be trusted in real tight games. He's given up six home runs in 14 innings, and he's giving them up to some real light-hitting hitters. Now, when it comes to the farm, um, the Angels may have two of the best relief prospects in the minors right now in, uh, in Cam Bedrosium and, uh, and R.J. Alvarez. Um, Alvarez was the one that scouts really liked before the season started, and he's been unscored upon as of yet. He's, he's thrown 16 innings, he's given up eight hits, and he has a 21 to 5 strikeout ratio at double A. But the real revelation has been uh, Bedrosian, who was a, a prospect. He was a high draft pick. He came down with Tommy John surgery, and while his velocity returned, he didn't quite have the command until this year. This year, he struck out an ungodly 31 hitters in 14 and two-thirds innings. He's given up two runs, both of which occurred in the same outing. These are arms that are going to be up probably before the All-Star break with LAA, and with respect to the closing and setup roles, they at least offer some hope down the road and in the future. Of course, uh, Cam Bedrosian, I believe, is the son of Steve Bedrosian, a former major league pitcher. That's correct, he is, and uh, he's, he's throwing lights out right now. Um, these are guys that if you have a deep, if you're in a deep league and you're looking for the bullpen of the future, um, that's where it is for the Angels. Another long-awaited call-up in the American League East where Marcus Stroman, a top pitching prospect for the Blue Jays, made his major league debut. He's only pitching here and there in fits and starts and inning here and inning there. Our minor league call-up team looked at him, but because he's working out of the bullpen, how does this play out as, as far as you're concerned? Well, he's going where he's needed most right now, given the recent implosion of the Blue Jay pen. But particularly now with, with Brandon Morrow on the DL again for a while, and, and really can uh, J.A. Happ or Dustin McGowan keep Stroman out of, the, out of the starting role? I mean, this was a guy who had a 169 ERA and a 36-7 to strikeout-to-walk ratio over 26 innings in his first minor league starts. I mean, you're a Toronto watcher. I'm, I'm more curious as to your take on this. I, th I think how they handle Stroman Jock is going to be a real indicator of how they think their chances are of being a playoff team in the American League this year. And realistically speaking, I don't think they have enough talent to be a playoff team. But if they think it's different, they may start sliding Stroman into the rotation. For now, I think they're playing it intelligently. They're, they're getting him into relatively low leverage relief situations so he can get his feet wet without having all the pressure of of pitching five or six innings in a start, uh, especially in a team that's going to be right around 500. Every win is important. Um, so let's keep an eye on what happens with Stroman over the next couple of weeks. And if you start seeing him making starts, it might be an indication that Toronto considers itself to be a player. And if that's the case, then they are going to have to make some other moves because if you look at their rotation right now, it's Mark Burley who's pitching over his head. It's R.A. Dickey, who's pitching uh, way less well than he did in his Cy Young year and has been struggling for quite a while now. And presumably, presumably, you put McGowan as the third guy, Stroman as fourth. You don't really have a fifth guy except for Hap, who's uh, a question mark at best. Uh, so does Toronto then go out in the trade market and shore up the rotation further, assuming Stroman gets a starting role and does well? I don't know. I, I think that there's a there's a lot to play out here and that if Toronto is being realistic that Stroman will not have a very significant role in the rotation. Yeah, it's a nice issue to have for Toronto though. This is a good arm and it's certainly one to uh, keep tabs on and and stock up on now for the future. Alexi Ramirez has had a huge start with the White Sox and Dave Adler profiled Ramirez in facts and flukes. What is he seeing with Alexi Ramirez? Well, if you look at Alexi's history, everything looks the same except for his hit rate and his 
home runs per fly ball, which really is the story of his hot start. Uh, the, the White Sox are obviously a, a feel-good story in themselves, but Ramirez is hitting 328. Uh, he was at the time of Dave's fat fluke. It's about 50 points higher than his expected batting average. Um, he's hit more home runs right now, uh, um, uh, prorated home runs, than he's going to during the season. He's going to cool down. He's the same player he always was. He's a very good shortstop. And uh, obviously, if you have a shortstop need, you don't want to sell him. He is a sell high right now if you can find an owner who believe he's going to do in May and June what he just finished doing in April, because that's not going to happen. He has had a 290 year back in 2008, his age 26 season. He's older than a lot of people realize, I think. And he's also been around 277, 282, and 284. And this year, up around 338. That doesn't seem likely to last. In a short run, he's just having a, a nice hot streak. But what's uh, perhaps more interesting is the recovery of his power. Uh, he started off as a power hitting shortstop. He had 21 home runs that rookie year. And then kind of fell all the way down to just six last year, but he's got four already so far this year, as we've noted. And, uh, geez, if he's on his way back to a 10 or 12 home run season with 25 bags, he's a he's a real value guy. And yet, maybe this is the chance to sell him high if you can get a good return. Yeah, um, you, you have to believe in that 10% home run per fly ball ratio, which he hasn't done for four years, like you mentioned, since his uh, since the... 2010 when he hit 18 home runs uh since then it's been dwindling i'll tell you what the ball seems to be jumping out of the cell this year so it will be interesting to see what happens when the summer comes because those are primary home run months for chicago and maybe for him uh it'll it would be interesting this is a situation where i think team context plays a lot if you are if you are a first or second place team and you can get a good return for alexei ramirez off your roster might be a good plan to do it especially if you can recover some decent return that has more reliability or less volatility in performance. On the other hand, if you're sixth and you project to need, you know, four or five points in home runs and you can make some kind of deal to get Ramirez at the expense of something you can afford to give up, it might be a chance for you to catch lightning in a bottle, and that's uh, that's what we're always about. And finally, Jock, also in the American League Central, Bob Berger wrote a Playing Time Tomorrow column about the return of Lorenzo Cain of the Royals. He's back from the DL with a strained groin, and the question, of course, is where does this leave Jared Dyson and all of his fantasy owners who've been pretty pleased with Dyson so far this year? You know, Kane is doing fine. He's he's obviously hitting an inflated 340. Uh, he's been 4 for 11 on his return, and he's still going to get most of the starts in center field. But I'm still a big Dyson fan, and if you look at what he did while while um, Kane was out, you can see why. He batted 286, he stole five bases, and he's once again on a pace to earn double-digit dollars as he has in each of the past two years coming off the bench. He really sparked a woeful Kansas City offense with his play while he was in there. And it comes back to the, to the fantasy point that his base running ability is really valuable almost regardless of your of your league's depth and I think he continues to get enough at bats to be valuable yeah there's something to be said for the specialist especially if he can keep hitting close to 290 or 285 that that has been a problem in the past and if he can maintain it he he's only a two category guy but those are two pretty good categories to have support in especially batting averages as they continue to sink yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. And his, his contact really isn't that bad. It's around 80%. Um, it's been there for a while. Um, I think I don't think his batting average is going to be a big sieve. He may hit 250 or 260 if, if the hits don't drop. 
but he has the potential to hit 270, 280 and steal 30 bases in only 250 at-bats, which is a money winner. It is. Uh, I, I would suspect he's more a 260 hitter than he is a 290 hitter, but maybe he's figuring things out, getting more balls in the ground. I haven't looked into it that closely, but speed is often a great weapon in shoring up an otherwise suspicious uh, batting average. So uh, Jared Dyson might be a guy to go and grab now that he seems to be on the uh, bench more often than in the field because it may not always be so. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD, see you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes all kinds of things for the site. And he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday talk with Todd is next. Stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun. So have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups in hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, Friday News and Notes Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week and in the coming days for BaseballHQ.com features like the new Facts and Flukes Spotlight column. Stephen Nickran takes a break from his starting pitcher's buyer's guide to take an in-depth look at Chicago White Sox outfielder Diane Viciedo. The arrival of top Mets prospect Wilmer Flores, which we've talked about on today's show, is covered on Playing Time Today, and so is top Texas prospect Rugnet Odor. Odor also features in the Daily Call-Ups report, along with many other recent arrivals from the farm. And Ron Chandler talks about asking the right questions in his Fanalytics column. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and so much more. It's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd. And once again, a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really good to be back, Patrick. If you can just do something about this rain, I'd be really appreciated. And I understand your uh, windshield wiper motor is on the fritz, so you can't even drive to go get a new windshield wiper motor. Yeah, I think over the winter... I tried to start, I, I left the windshield wipers on and it was frozen and I didn't realize and it kind of bent the uh, bent the rod inside the windshield wiper transmission and uh, someone's got to go to eBay because it's an old car and find a part. Todd, uh, I know you and I both enjoy going on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums because a lot of issues pop up. A lot of it is, should I make this trade and so forth and uh, the kind of stuff that pops up in chat rooms and chat systems all over the place. But every so often you get an interesting question, and I saw one just uh, today where they were talking about uh, the call-ups of Wilmer Flores by the Mets and Rugnet Odor by Texas. I'm gonna t- uh, I've talked about both of those trades earlier in the show with our National League and American League Market Watch segments. But the question is, when you see a prospect like this coming up, Todd, how do you handle evaluating the effect that that prospect might have on your team? It's very contextual. And actually, these are a couple of really good examples with Odor and Flores to sort of use as an example to explain at least part of what I'm talking about. In that Odor is coming up 
I don't want to say it's a stopgap, but you know the Rangers are competing. They're they're falling a little behind. Jerks and Profar's hurt. They need some help. There's no guarantee that that Odor continues to to play once Profar's back uh, with Andrus playing you know all that sort of stuff leonis martins in the outfield now are you going to convert one of those guys to center field that whole dynamic so odor is he a rental for uh, for a couple weeks a month or is he going to be on your team for the rest of the season versus flores who you know as was talked about is a is is coming back to shortstop was playing some third base because of defensive deficiencies and if he can hit at all and field the position at all he may play the next five months or four and a half months at shortstop. So you might have a year long or, you know, for the rest of the year, a player who gets you another 450, 500 at bats. So just from that angle, I'm going to be more aggressive going after Flores than I would Odor. Even, you know, forget the skills for just a second. For opportunity's sake, you know, Flores to me is a more attractive target if I'm taking a, a chance on a, on a prospect. So that that's one thing I want to look at right off the bat is opportunity, and is it you know a rental or is it a full time guy? And Flores is, is attractive to me in that nature, especially in deeper leagues. Uh, I've, if, if you're looking for him, and I'll tout everybody out there, don't bother because I have him on my reserve roster. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely take a chance on a guy that's gonna play the next five months. You mentioned context. There's also your own team's context, and that is there's anytime you make a move, there's an opportunity cost because somebody has to be removed from your roster in order for you to add somebody to your roster. And that also has got to be a main consideration. I'm not going to drop Troy Tulowitzki for either of these guys, but as the Mets did, I've got no problem if my shortstop was Ruben Tejada, I'll add Wilmer Flores in a heartbeat because the uh, the upgrade is so great. Right. Well, in Tout Wars, I'm going to be replacing Daniel Descalso, so it's it's you know it's a no-brainer. But in a, you know in a 15-team mixed league, all right, Tulowitzki is fairly obvious. You're not going to leave him on there. But are you going to take a chance? Are you going to take Zach Cozart out? Are you going to take Brad Miller out? Are you going to take Brandon Phillips out for some of these guys? And there's going to be people that drop someone the equivalent of Brandon Phillips to take a shot on Wilmer Flores, and. I, I think we're spoiled a little bit by some of the success that the minor leaguers have had over the years, and we forget about those that weren't as successful. Uh, and so, in a mixed league, I'm probably not going to take the same, be as aggressive on Flores. I'm going to let Odor go elsewhere, uh, just because I just don't know. I'm not going to waste resources on a guy that could be up for a couple of weeks. He could be up for a week if he doesn't hit, but. Flores, you know, Zach Cozart, I don't know. If my team's struggling, I might I might go for it. Uh Brad Miller I'm probably not gonna not gonna go for not gonna replace Brad Miller at this point. So if if that's my cutoff, if that's my filter as to how aggressively I'll pursue Flores, but you're right. There is definitely do, does my team need a shot in the arm? Uh, what's the the status of the players that it's that it that it's going to be placing? Now, keep in mind that I'm just using shortstop's example, and Flores isn't actually shortstop eligible yet for 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 those that are you know looking for a shortstop. He's third base only at this point, but the the idea being the the player that it replaces of that quality. I'm not going to take a chance on a uh, on a on a player that should bounce back, and in, in the theory, you know, should have the numbers by the end of the season. 
Another aspect of team context, Todd, it seems to me, is where are you in your league? Uh, that the uh, As you climb up towards the top of your standings, it seems to me that your risk profile gets more conservative. And as you get down the standings, you have to be willing to take on some more risk in the hope of getting some kind of reward that's going to make you... Uh, in position at least to make a move in the standings. And in this example, if I was sitting in first place and my choice was Wilmer Flores, yeah, maybe because it's a Brad Miller type of situation. If I'm in first or second spot, I don't think I'm, I'm as willing to do this as if I'm in sixth or seventh spot and I need to catch lightning in a bottle and maybe Wilmer Flores is it. I know what I've got with Brad Miller, but I need to roll the dice that I get something more. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's still a little early in the season, but I think you know we've all played this game long enough to know which of our players to worry about, which of our players not to worry about, and just sort of project forward. You know, if I have if I have Will Middlebrooks or someone of that ilk, and I'm you know at the top of my standings, I'm just going to run with it. I'm just going to run with Middlebrooks. The power stroke's going to come. He's not going to hit for average, but you know he'll he'll be fine. I don't think I'm going to go out there and replace you know Wilmer for take out. Take take Middlebrooks or someone like that out for for Wilmer Flores at this point, uh, but if you know if I'm lower in the standings and and I've had issues at third base, I've had issues at corner infield, and I'm running with lesser guys at this point. If I'm you know uh, you know one of the guys on Seattle, you know the, the the million the myriad of corner infielders over there, yeah, I'm going to take a chance on Flores and 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 it's difficult. For those of us, you know, a num- you know, I hate the the numbers, guys. It's difficult for us to make a decision just because, just based on opportunity. But in today's landscape, there's with fewer players available, you have to. Sometimes you just you just have to do it, and it's you know, numbers be gone. You throw them out the window. Opportunity becomes the main filter as far as who you take and who you don't take. Yeah, that's another good point. The uh, depth of the league matters as well. Uh, In general, Todd, when you're looking at a prospect and you're trying to figure out how good can he be in order to start making these other decisions that we've just talked about, what kind of skills are you looking at in his minor league record to help you assess whether he's got the, the, the chops to play at the big league level and to help your fantasy squad? See, that's, I'm glad you asked because I didn't want to let let this sort of go on untalked about because... I make it sound like, you know, forget all prospects. I, I, you've got to consider the prospect. There's a chance that, that he might be able to play well for the rest of the season. And what I like to look at, well, first what I like to do is I like to go to the, the experts at Baseball HQ and, and, and things like that because I don't consider myself a minor league expert. I consider, you know, I, I know what to look for. I don't see the players, so I, I rely on I rely on the guys in the HQ and the forums and the, and the minor league reports uh, in a big way. But what I, I do know what to, you know I learning learning from them. I look for what walk to strikeout ratio. Uh, I think is especially important. Uh, the better you can control the strike zone, even at a young age, it, uh, there's always going to be your Jeremy Hermitas that everybody loves that don't do it. But there's a far better chance of success if you can control the strike zone, even in the minor leagues. So I'll look for the walks to strikeouts. I like to look for extra base hit percentage to hits, I think uh, is, is an interesting factor to look for as far as at least power potential. Uh, and along those lines, you sort of have to temper what you see, or at least you have to be aware of the park they play in. 
I can't. I'm not one of those that can rattle off the the different parks and the different uh, how good or bad you know division, you know, different leagues. Even some some leagues have so many parks in there. They're just known as hitting leagues and known as non-hitting leagues. For well, actually, Las Vegas I know is a, is a hitting park. So when you take a look at Flores' numbers, you have to realize that there it's a very good environment down there in Las Vegas. So you have to temper your expectations just a bit. As far as you know, as far as what he did in the minors versus what he did in the majors, so all looking at walkouts to strikeouts, extra base hit percentage, all tempered by the park they play in. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I leave the assessment of prospects to people who devote a lot of time to it, because it seems like a fool's errand to go and try to develop a, my own system of converting minor league stats to major league stats because of all those external factors. And these are relatively well handled by BaseballHQ.com. Baseball America does a really good job of of assessing players and so forth. So in this instance, it seems like spend your time doing something a little more productive than reinventing a wheel that's been invented and perfected as much as it can be by people who've been at it for a long time. Uh, Todd, at FantasyAlarms.com, you uh, had an interesting column the other day. It wasn't so much about baseball, but it was about the experience of being a fantasy baseball writer uh, with an eye towards advising people who might want to get into this racket how they can go about it. Uh, give us the highlights. Yeah, I was uh, I was asked by the guys to, 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 to lighten it up a little bit, you know, let my hair down, what's left of it, and just talk a little bit about being a writer because we're all asked questions. How do I break into the industry when I go out to the first pitch forums? Uh, with HQ in the spring, and you know, I'm always asked how, or uh, you know, someone will give me a piece to read, and can I critique, and that sort of thing. So sure, I, I said sure, guys. I'll uh, I'll talk a little bit about it because you know I have made this my living a little over a year now. Uh, been in the industry for over 15 years, but I've only been doing it officially, formally as my vocation for a little over a year now. So you know, I guess I'm okay. I guess I'm. Uh, qualified enough to talk about it. Of course, my entry into the field was a bit different in that it was a secondary interest of mine, you know, for for a number of years as I was a, a scientist, as it were, until the industry, the biotech industry, dried up, or at least I was unable to find a job once I lost the last one I had to get back into it. And uh, getting into it, at least writing, it was more out of desperation than it was out of desire although I that doesn't even I, I wrote that 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 leaves a bad impression that doesn't sound good you know who's going to read me if I don't want to be writing it I don't mean to say that I just mean that uh heck I love science I I, I you know I, I I wish I was still in it and still doing this on the side but things didn't work out that way but I love what I'm doing now too so it's not as if I'm not you know putting all I have into it uh actually I'm probably putting more into it because of that at this point but you know you we 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 all go back, those of us that have been in the business for for years, we all go back to the days when there were news groups and there were uh, forums. The HQ forum is very active. It's not, I think it's the exception to the rule. But the main, you know, the advice that I like to give back in the day to get into it was to find a site you like and get involved in the discussions on the forums. Uh, the intelligent, you know, answering questions, offering advice. Uh, you sort of would get your uh, name some credibility because I know HQ does it. You uh, most most places promote from within, uh, from their own uh, you know readers, their own audience. They develop their own family, as it were. And I know you know I know a lot of people that are now writing for HQ 
that you know that sowed their oats in the forums it's a little bit different nowadays because there's not as many forums you get to get out there and you know do your own blog or or do your own podcast and use social media to to get the word out but uh you know it's, it's difficult there's just so many people trying to do it you need to separate yourself from the field a bit and to me the way to do that is to be different but not you know be be relevant but different find stuff that people want to hear and read but they can't read or hear it elsewhere i know that's sort of a difficult thing to do as well but uh the best advice they ever got was from my old bud jason gray who's now with tampa bay who said to me when i asked him you know what should i do this year what do you want me to write write about and he says well think about what you want if you were just a player just going to a site think about that and then write it and uh to this day that's sort of my credo that's sort of what i do and uh it served me pretty well when you talked about how uh, baseballhq.com recruits its its writers uh they still do the same thing that they've been doing i got recruited because i was on online and and uh, a member of the community this is even before they had community boards and every year ron chandler would send out an open invitation to everybody who subscribed saying if you think you have you know something to say and and are reasonably good at doing the research and the writing send me a couple of samples and maybe i'll hire you and uh i stuck i was a newspaper reporter so i knew i could write and uh this was my hobby b- uh, fantasy baseball and so he sent out a, a challenge to write a uh, an analysis of a couple of players who were current at the time and uh i did well enough that i got hired and i remember to this day because the uh the first player was a guy I thought was going to be a, an outstanding player with a, a very good batting average and top power. That was Brad Fulmer. You might remember him. <laughs> You're the one we should be blaming. I wasn't the only one. Uh, he had that <laughs> He had that physique. And then the other one was a player new to Major League Baseball, and I gave a very detailed explanation about how he would never amount to anything, be lucky to hit 260, and that was Ichiro Suzuki. All Ichiro's done is ring up about 3,000 hits in the big leagues and headed for the Hall of Fame. So um, I had I had two absolutely uh, dud reports, but as long as you can justify it and explain yourself well, then there's there's going to be room for you. But you have to do the work. You know, you have to be you have to understand. I think how analysis works. You have to be willing to put it down on paper and then be ruthless with yourself or find an editor because writing about fantasy baseball. When I look at it and I read a lot of fantasy baseball stuff, I think one of the big weaknesses is the writing is not that good. Right. You know, there are people who make grammar errors and, and they don't explain things and it's all disjointed and, you know, use an outline, use a dictionary. All these kind of writerly things are really important if you're trying to break through because, as you said, man, it's a competitive world out there. Right. And I think the same goes for the spoken word as well on podcasts and on the radio. Nothing turns me off more than... Uh, and here I go, uh, pausing. Nothing turns me off more than you know grammar and, and, and butchering of the language and, and that sort of thing. I know there's things that there's stylistic stylistic things like that's fine. You can you can be your own. You can be E. E. Cummings and and not use capital letters and that sort of thing. But you need to develop the right to do that first. I mean, you you went back to your articles now. You, the the result might not have been correct, but I'm sure the process. I'm sure you went back and you know you used data and it you know it wasn't just an intuitive or anecdotal you went back and you found reasons why you believed each of these players would you know su- succeed or not succeed and so that's the other thing out there and I wrote about this as well is all the time I hear 
you know, I, I like this particular analyst because he or she gives his reasons. Well, it's, giving reasons is fine, but what are those reasons based on too? I, there's so many people that, so many people that are using, uh, here I am, you know, kind of going out and calling out my industry sort of, but I guess that's just the way it is. There's so many of my brethren that just use outdated information or, or intuitive information or even anecdotal at a point where they're not doing their own homework. Uh, in the in the piece in Fennis Alarm, I actually called it the information pyramid and likened it to the telephone game, where I think there's a, a set, I think it's a pretty good number of people that are top of the pyramid, doing the work, doing the due diligence, doing the research, doing everything out there, staying current, staying cutting edge, and then they, they, they disseminate their information, and there's a second group that that reads that, that knows that, that hears that, and then they use that as their reference for their information that they disseminate. And as you go down this pyramid, uh, less and less research is being done, more and more regurgitation is being done, and the message could get garbled or mistaken or just downright wrong, and it just it's part of the industry becoming what it is. So many out, so many people out there looking to break in, and so many people out there, you know, wanting information. You know, so in that aspect, it's really, really good that that there's the need. But you know, the the jobs being done with so many people fulfilling them at this point, uh, you know, I look for quality over quantity, and you know, I think I think we could do a better job with the quality. In many instances, yeah, and and I would only add a couple of things about the rules of writing. I get a lot of, I teach writing at a college here in Ontario, and, and one of the things I hear from my students is, I don't feel like I have to follow the rules because the important thing is that I just express myself in a way that I understand that's my own voice. And my response is, that's great if you're going to write a novel, and especially if you don't mind that nobody wants to read it, but when you're talking about conveying information to people who have a need for it and want to pay for it, then you don't get to have a voice that just sounds like you because you have some inalienable right to this. You have to understand that people who are paying for it want their information presented to them correctly, understandably, and briefly. And sometimes people who want to get into this business have all the all of the enthusiasm and what have you but you got to understand just like anything else especially in the creative fields if you want to break the rules that's fine but first you've got to know them you've got to understand the the general rules of writing properly before you can branch off and start violating those rules and that and once you understand them you know how to break them and that's the key thing that's a difference and the other thing i would add is if you want to write for Baseball Prospectus or Baseball HQ or RotoWire or any of the big sites, because that's where the that's where the readers are, that's a great um, um, what's the word I'm searching for? It that's a great aspiration to have. But before you start submitting your articles, subscribe, read for a year, find out what it is that they are publishing, how they go about it, what it looks like, how it reads, what are the research standards, and so forth. Don't just assume that because you like baseball that you can stick in a story that you think is interesting to an established vehicle like one of those main sites and expect that they're going to be all excited about it because, frankly, if you don't read what they are putting out already, your chances of matching it in tone and style and so forth are pretty limited. Right, and that bridges into uh, 
I think it's a little different nowadays than it was back when back in the day when I first started doing this. But you got to be willing to work for free or for peanuts if you eventually want to, even if you want to make it as a as a living. It's the old analogy where you you walk into the, the the restaurant or the bar and you tell the manager that you'll you'll on Wednesday night you'll work for tips, and that's it, and prove your worth. And before you know it, you're getting the Saturday and Sunday shifts. So it's sort of the same sort of thing is is be ready, be willing to, you know, not get compensated a whole lot for your early writings. I can't I can't tell you how long uh it was before I finally start getting, you know, and, you know, forget about, you know, real money. I you know, my job, you know, just getting paid at all. I think the gestation period nowadays is probably less than it might have been 10 or 15 years ago, but it's still there. You still have to, you know, earn the right to to be paid as it were because there's just so many people out there and you know you write your free blog you do a good job of it you make sure that your information is current and and, and even not so much not out there but you know make make sure that it's not being you know handled in a similar fashion by other people because the same information can be approached in several different ways i'm not saying that there's only a limited amount of stuff that we can write about but there needs to be some originality and uniqueness to it uh, you know, then you can use your social media to to get known. And a big suggestion, and I wish there were other avenues to do this, but it's out there, and that's the Baseball HQ sponsored with with Rick Wilton, the uh, the first pitch forums. There's no better place to go and and get to know people and and, and get to know people in the industry in an in, in an environment where uh, casually you can you know find out from people better than me because I I can't give you a job talk to people that can give you a job uh and, and there's no better place than showing up in arizona in the fall and and and, and even in the spring to, to stop by the 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 forum tours and talk to some people as well uh that's it's a great way to get out there and to get to know people in a manner that you know you can talk one-on-one and, and find out what you need to do know what you're doing do it do it well and then network uh, when you add it all up, uh, it's it's sound advice, Todd, and it was a really interesting column at fantasyalarms.com, fantasyalarm.com, not plural, fantasyalarm.com. And finally, you talked about the uh, Baseball HQ forums, which in in addition to being a real interesting source of knowledge and comment and analysis, are also a really good place to practice your writing and see if you generate responses and stuff like that. Um from the forums, there's a, as usual about this time of year when the trades in leagues start happening, not long after the discussions start about when trades should be vetoed or whether there should be a mechanism for vetoing. And I know we've probably talked about it in the past, but now that people are talking about it in the forums, let's us talk about it. What's your general overview about the whole idea of vetoing trades in fantasy baseball leagues? I'll get two different, you know, two different paths to take it in. And the first we'll say is, I believe that the rules of your league, that your constitution should govern trades in some manner, way, shape, or form, and that the commissioner should administer, and that the league should have limited say in whether a trade is good or not. It should be one way or another covered within the rules. And I think a lot of leagues out there, the commissioner has got the full hammer, or there's a three-man trade committee or something to that effect. Uh, so that's sort of my first, I, I don't know, I, I see too many 
postings by the commissioner. Should I veto this trade? And that, uh, without even hearing the trade, I just kind of shake my head and, and just kind of, oh boy, here we go. You know, I, it kind of bothers me a bit that a commissioner, you're trusting someone. I guess it's good that they're asking, but yet, you know, you're trusting someone to, to make this decision and, and they need to write about it. I think there's a sort of inherent issue a little bit. But like I said, it's good that they're not making a decision on their own. But just the whole, I guess it's the whole concept of the commissioner doing that that bugs me just a little bit. Uh, and then the whole, you know, the sort of overriding, I only vote to a trade, you know, it's, you know, stand up on your, on your, at the top of the mountain and pound your chest. I only veto a trade if there's obvious signs of collusion. Well, I think we both can count on probably our thumbs how many leagues we've been on where we've seen obvious signs of collusion over the years. I know I've got two thumbs and I have one free one if I count the number of times where I know there was collusion. I, I've actually seen it in the uh, Baseball HQ forums where people have said that I'm only going to veto a, a colluded trade. Well, the thing about collusion is it doesn't tend to take place out in the open. But it raises an interesting question to me, Todd, and, and this is it. What about situations where the trade is bad? There are situations, we've both been in leagues, I'm sure, where somebody made a trade and really upset the balance of the league, by either by being fleeced, I'm not even saying they colluded, I'm saying they were dumb. And the problem, if you just allow that kind of thing to go through, is well-meaning, good players might be um, obliged or feel themselves obliged to leave the league. I can't compete in a league where, where Joe will trade Jim, you know, Alex Rodriguez for a bag of magic beans. And that happens. We know it happens. Guys get fleeced all the time. The sharks and the minnows, uh, it comes up every year. And do we not need some kind of mechanism to control for that? Sure. And it, it, it goes beyond, I mean, the obvious, well, it's a money league and I'm potentially losing money because of this silly trade. Uh, time is money to a lot of people and you're investing a lot of time and effort and and blood, sweat, and tears into your draft and everything else, and it, just to have it go to waste because of a trade like this, yeah, I do think there needs to be some form of governing beyond the rules that, you know, for, for trades to me, in my mind, that are obviously imbalanced. I suppose you can trust a commissioner, and if you do trust a commissioner to make that decision and, and everybody trusts them and the commissioner is worthy, I guess that's great. I still, I know everybody doesn't agree, but I don't mind a... A league-wide vote where the percentage necessary to overturn is sufficient to eliminate those that that I know we've talked about it those that grade each trade selfishly on how it affects their team they're out there but the leagues that I've been in if the percentage is large enough it sort of just self-governs itself in that those votes aren't enough to overturn a trade. It takes the the extra handful of people that are actually judging it fairly to veto an actual trade of that nature. Uh, I, again, it's it's league. Con Maybe I've just been lucky in the leagues that I've been in. I can only th I think can think of one in particular that's done this for years. And maybe I'm just lucky in that the league just works out this way. Yeah, we've got the four or five people that that do this, and you know what? We know that they do this, and they don't get trades passed. By you know, by being selfish, there's, there's you know every action has a reaction. You know what? We're going to veto your trades, even if it's a good one, just because that's what you do. Uh, so you have to sort of think about that as well. But I can I can live with a league that has a 75 percent 
veto rate and if you know if three quarters of the league not including the owners that are involved which actually you know makes even more than seven you know it, it really makes if it's 75 percent of what's left it means even a greater percentage of the league has to veto it then uh yeah I, I can deal with a league that has that sort of a rule yeah i guess if i trust the commissioner but i'm i'm more it, i don't know i just i have trouble in a league where the commissioner plays in the league and makes the decisions even on obvious trades it's human nature to look at how a trade is going to affect your team even if you're not involved in it and whether you're the commissioner with the hammer or whether you're a member of a trade committee it's awfully tempting to to come up with some kind of uh, reason that you can say yeah this trade doesn't add up or it's tr- this trade is not fair to the league or whatever when really what you mean is this trade is going to affect my chances of winning or moving up in the standings and usually when a trade is proposed as vetoable somebody makes an argument in favor of vetoing it because they they have some objection and you can just go along with that side of the argument and as i said it is awfully tempting to do that rather than looking at the best interests of the league as a whole and something you said that really struck me i played in a league many years ago it's i still play in the league but the personnel have changed over the years but you really could count on everybody trying to do what was best for the league to keep the league going and to keep it enjoyable for everybody and over time the the personnel changes and, and some guys join because they want to make money and as soon as that enters into it boy then you really are in a pickle as far as trying to figure out how you're going to govern trades because trades have the possibility of affecting payouts that's why the NFBC doesn't allow them at all, with good reason. And I wonder if, if uh, more leagues are going to adopt the idea that you can't trade, period, but then a lot of guys like trading. Ugh, it's a mess. Yeah, well, just real quick, going back to the whole collusion thing is, I've actually you know, had this, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm, I'm not, I can't bait people the way that lawyers can, but what I like to do is say, all right, you're in a league, and, and someone traded you know, Daniel Descauso, for Miguel Cabrera. Well, obviously they'll come back. Obviously, I'm not going to allow that trade. All right. Well, but you said you know there was no collusion. You know, there's just guy that really, really likes Daniel Descalso because he's a Cardinals fan. You're going to let that trade go? No, I'm not going to let that trade go. Well, that's obviously that's not going to happen. That's hyperbole. But you know, you you narrow that gap down. You narrow the the difference between those two players, and what it becomes it becomes a matter of tolerance, in that we all have different levels of tolerance between the egregious nature of the, of the two players involved. So I think, you know, you know what, there are going to people be out there that say, you know what, if he wants to scowl, so it's his money, it's his business, it's his team, let him do it. Now that bridges into what you say, is the league going to survive under that nature? But to me, it, it, it becomes a matter of tolerance, whether or not, uh, you know, between the, you know, you don't have evidence of the collusion. And we all have different levels of tolerance as far as what is acceptable and, and what isn't. I think if we analyze a trade, putting our team aside just on the surface of player, player, position, position, standings impact versus standings impact. And the uh, other issue that popped into my mind while you were talking about that is what about a situation where you make a trade that appears to be one-sided or unfavorable to yourself, but actually isn't. And the, and the reason I think of this is I remember years ago, and I've talked about this before on Baseball HQ Radio here on the podcast, I made a trade in my league 
that I sent Mariano Rivera to a guy in the league and I got nothing back. He sent me back a pitcher to balance the trade because that was required. I waived that pitcher. And a lot of guys in the league thought I shouldn't be allowed to do this. And and the reason I did it, of course, was because Rivera went by a bunch of guys in saves that helped me indirectly. And to me, that's a perfectly justifiable reason for making a trade like that. But even after I explained it to some guys, they said, I don't think you should be allowed to make a trade like that. The trade should have to benefit you directly in the category. So he's all right for accepting Rivera because he's going to move up in saves. But you're not all right for doing it because you don't benefit directly. You only benefit indirectly, and that shouldn't be allowed. And at that point, you're really talking about philosophical differences, and then you're back in a mess. Well, you're not trading players. You're, you know, you're trading points. Or you're gaining points. I, yeah. I agree. You know, I, I fall on your side of the argument. I'm making a trade that improves my chances of winning. You know, how, you know what that actually is, what the actual dynamic of how that occurs, sort of to me is irrelevant. You have improved your chances of winning by making that trade. Therefore, I think you know it should be you know a, a good trade. I think uh, I think it's rare that people will actually make that sort of a deal. You often will see a you know a middle you know an Emilio Bonifacio for Paul Goldschmidt sort of deal where you're set in power, you're set in all those categories, but you need you know ten more steals get you the championship or get you into the money, so you trade a lesser speed guy or trade for a lesser speed guy where on paper air quotes in a vacuum their values aren't the same but you know they help you i think it's you know it takes takes a lot of you know intuition and, and uh, to be able to figure out that get, waving the player you get back actually helps you uh you know so kudos for that but no i agree i mean i wouldn't i would not have you know i would have if you were in the league and you beat me i wouldn't have threatened to quit i would have shaken your hand and said damn i'm gonna do that next year and the better players in the league actually shook my hand and said, damn, I wish I'd thought of it, and I'm going to do it next year. And they started doing it, and and good for them. I, I thought, I'm with you, that any trade that helps you advance your cause is okay. I mean, I, I draw the line at, I don't like you, therefore I'm going to put Paul Goldschmidt on that guy's roster so he can go by you and, and hurt you without helping me, I think. I think that's unjustifiable. There should be some rationale that says I'm I'm improving my chances of winning by doing this. I'm not just screwing somebody else in the league. Um, boy, this is one of those topics we could go on for hours. I'm sure our listeners are thinking we might. So let's let's call it there, Todd. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. I uh, can't wait. Going to be good. Hopefully, it's not raining. <laughs> <laughs> Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, ESPN.com, busiest guy in show business, and of course, he appears every Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us. Pitcher matchups and master notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. And here comes Roger Maris. Just standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number sixty-one. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. HQ Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday HQ commentaries, and we lead off this inning with our matchup segment. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings run from plus 5 to minus 5. Recommended pitchers have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while pitcher warnings have ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between, well, that's a risk versus benefit play that you have to decide. Now looking at Baltimore right-hander Miguel Gonzalez visiting Houston to take on right-hander Colin McHugh and Miami right-handed ground baller Henderson Alvarez in San Diego against left-hander Robert Erland, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. We're going to use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool a little differently this weekend. Let's examine two matchups with near-even matchup ratings and choose which pitcher to start. In the American League on Saturday, Houston hosts Baltimore at Minute Maid Park. Miguel Gonzalez goes for the O's. He has a nice matchup rating of 377. Colin McHugh takes the hill for the Astros, and he has a similar matchup rating of 4-0. Both pitchers are right-handed, and Minute Maid is a fairly neutral park. In his five starts, Gonzalez has an average PQS score of 3-0. In three starts, McHugh has an average PQS score of 3-3. Neither McHugh nor Gonzalez has an outlandish hit rate or strand rate. Ah, but Gonzalez has pitched 307 innings in the majors, and his current base performance value is very close to his projected BPV for the remainder of the season. McHugh's major league sample size is only 67 innings pitched, and his current BPV is more than twice his projected BPV for the rest of the year. So McHugh is pitching better than expected, and he could be in for a sizable correction. Let's give the edge to Miguel Gonzalez for this one. In the National League on Sunday, the white-hot Miami Marlins visit the San Diego Padres. The Marlins have won 8 of their past 10 and 14 of their past 20 games. Miami right-hander Henderson Alvarez comes in fresh from his second complete game shutout of the year with a matchup rating of 280. The Padres counter with lefty Robert Erlin and his matchup rating of 233. Only three stadiums make it harder than Petco Park for a right-handed batter to hit one out. That bodes very well for Erlin. And surprisingly, Petco actually increases left-handed batters' home runs by 30%. That looks bad for Alvarez, doesn't it? But wait, Alvarez allows only 25% fly balls, so the hefty home run rate for left-handed batters won't harm him. And the Marlins' record against left-handed pitchers is second-best in the majors. Meanwhile, the Padres' record against right-handed pitchers ranks 27th. And San Diego has scored far fewer runs than any other team in the majors. So let's go with Henderson Alvarez in this Mother's Day matchup. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchups reports as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and with a look at, admit it, it's over. Here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I have been tossing around a bit of research that has made it into some radio conversations over the past month. The research says that fantasy teams in 5th place or lower at the end of April have only a 20% chance of winning, at best. The further down you are in the standings, the lower your odds. The research is backed up at the major league level. 
since 2002, only 23% of teams that were more than three games out of first place on May 1st went on to win their division. Three games seems like nothing to overcome, but there it is. So put yourself in Paul Goldschmidt's shoes right now. You've just come off of a breakout season, your whole career is ahead of you. Opening day brings the promise of new beginnings and the chance for your team to contend. And then, the Diamondbacks go splat. This is not just a little splat, mind you. This has been one big, huge honking splat at the beginning of a season. If you're Paul Goldschmidt right now, all you see is that you still need to go out there every day for the next 22 weeks, and your team can't see first place without a telescope. At the highest levels, D-backs management is likely doing its best to spin this state of affairs so that attendance doesn't plummet. Marketing is a wonderful thing. Some of you who are D-backs fans are probably thinking, hey, there's always a chance the team will turn it around, right? After all, it's only May. There's lots of time. There's always hope. Hope, yeah. But realistically, the baseball season has already ended in the Arizona desert. You see, since 2002, there have been 22 teams that ended April at least nine and a half games out of first place. Guess how many made it to the postseason? None. Not one. If we cast out our net a little further and include teams that were nine games out, we add four more. Now we have 26 teams, and of those, only one sniffed October. In 2006, Minnesota opened the season 9 and 16, nine games out of first. They ended up backing into a division title by a game over the Tigers because the Tigers lost their last five in a row. Then the Twins went three and out in the ALDS. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for hope. But that's all we've got, right? That slim glimmer of a happy future that baseball fans have been clinging on to for decades. How's that been working out for you? On page 58 of this year's Baseball Forecaster, we define hope as a commodity that routinely goes for $5 over value at the draft table. Clearly, it was hope that pushed Bryce Harper into the first round in this year's drafts. For all you Harper owners, you got what you deserved. Hope is overrated. Hope has no substance. It has no place in sabermetrics or any corner of intelligent analysis. It's empty. Singer Ben Folds tells us, you know what hope is? Hope is a bastard. Hope is a liar, a cheat, and a tease. Hope comes near you? Kick its backside. Got no place in days like these. My Tout Wars team is in 12th place with 26.5 points, about 10 points out of 11th. It is not an unfamiliar spot for me. My teams often start slow, and then I spend a Herculean effort to move up. And I always do, and I will again. I have never finished in last place in my life, and I won't this year either. But I'm not going to win. If this was a money league, odds are I won't taste the cash. I might grind it out for the next four and a half months to finish... Seventh? In all the years of grinding out bad starts, I have finished as high as second, twice. I suppose that was worth the effort, but as former tout and current race scout Jason Gray always said, second place is first loser. Winning is everything. But that's clearly not happening in two of my three experts' leagues this year. 
Everything we do is about percentage plays, and the current standings say that it's over in Tout Wars, it's over in the XFL, and neither hard work nor hope is going to get me anywhere in either of them. It's a slap-in-the-face reality check. Some of us are just not going to win this year. And yes, at this early point of the season, we do know. I know, Ben Folds knows, and if they are willing to come to terms with reality, Paul Goldschmidt and the Arizona Diamondbacks know as well. It's over. So, um, what now? Um, well, uh, we, uh, we keep on playing. Why? Because we are idiots. No, no, we, we keep on playing for the sake of sportsmanship. We keep on playing because winners never quit and losers never win or quit if they ever hope to become winners. Uh, heck, we keep on playing because it's the American way. I don't know. Why do we keep on playing if there's really no hope to win? If the percentage play is really 0%, why bother? I suppose because there are occasional miracles. It's that one in a million happenstance when the Red Sox come back from a 3-0 deficit facing Mariano Rivera to win four straight against the Yankees. It's that ninth place fantasy team 40 points back at the All-Star break that makes a second half run to the title behind Javier Vasquez. And I suppose it's the simple joy of just playing, regardless of winning or losing. There may be no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but the rainbow is pretty damn nice on its own. And I suppose, no matter how remote the odds, is there really such a thing as 0%? Even at .001%, Jim Carrey reminds us, so you're telling me there's a chance. So we play on, but it's not about hope. Even when there won't be a championship, we'd like the chance to be spectator to one of those occasional miracles. Maybe hope is a bastard, but miracles do happen. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler of BaseballHQ.com. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for May the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. On the site coming up soon, I'll be looking to see how pitcher velocity affects or predicts pitcher performance. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums as well. And remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. 
You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout Edition featuring the Vice President for Stats at MLB Advanced Media, Corey Schwartz, on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.